You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Glenn DeGee from McAuliffe, Florida, and you're listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for October the 28th, episode 3048. This episode is brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products. Good morning, Horse World. Well, Jamie and Lisa are off today, and Halloween is just a few days away, so I thought I'd share with you one of the spooky episodes that we did a few years ago. In this special Halloween episode, Kristen from Horse Nation and now host of Retired Racehorse Radio and I share some spooky stories from listeners. Plus, we did a game of Halloween trivia between Otter Stephanie and April. Well, we'll get to the spook right after this message from Kentucky Performance Products. And Lisa and I will be back on Monday with a brand new episode. She swallowed hard as they walked into the start box. She could feel his muscles tense under her leg. Five, four, three, two, one. Have a great ride. She didn't have to ask. He galloped out of the box and across the field toward their first training level course. His ears pricked. Her heart pounded. He attacked each obstacle with confidence, clearing them with room to spare. A huge smile broke out on her face as she crossed through the finish flags. She leaned forward and buried her face in his neck. Their bond of love and trust blocked out all else. This love story is brought to you by Elevate. Research proven to have superior bioavailability, Elevate supplies the essential vitamin E often missing from the equine diet. Its all-natural formula supports healthy muscle and nerve functions. The horse that matters to you matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Call 859-873-2974 or visit kppusa.com to order today. Good morning, everybody. I am Glenn the Geek in Ocala, Florida. And I am Kristen Kovach from Horse Nation, and you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for Halloween, October 31st, episode 1808. This episode is brought to you by you, the auditors. Good morning, Horse World. Well, happy Halloween, everybody. Thank you for joining Kristen and I on this Halloween special. We have never done a Halloween special before, and it's only because Kristen is so persuasive. I am. Yeah. I said, we're doing it, Glenn. It's Halloween. That's right. It comes once a year. And I said, you know, Halloween is my least favorite holiday of the year, and actually, longtime listeners will remember that. And Kristen said, doesn't matter. You owe it to your audience. You have to do it. So here we are. Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Well, you did, and what prompted all of this to do a Halloween special, other than we had nothing else planned for today, <laughs> was, uh, well, that was one thing, but the other thing, like <laughs> that had something to do with it, but Kristen volunteered, she, she put her hand up and she said, you know, I want to do a contest this year, so tell us what happened. So this year for Horse Nation, uh, we wanted to make the most of Halloween this year. Um, so we had a short story contest. Uh, we asked readers and auditors to send in their Halloween best spooky stories. Um, not every story you'll hear today is spooky. Some of them are spooky funny. Um, but everything has a, a horse and a Halloween theme. So we got probably over a dozen submissions, um, some excellent stories. And we chose the best five. So the, the spookiest, the funniest. 
um, just the, the best overall five um, to publish on Horse Nation. Um, and we read <clears throat> some of them today. Um, some of them were a little long, did not make it to the air. Um, but we, yeah, we some went 25 favorites. minutes when we read them, and it was like, okay, that would take up half the show. So <laughs> that's a, Yeah, so yeah. you can check out all of them at horsenation.com, but certainly we're going to, to read a selection for you today to help put everybody in the Halloween spirit. So. And I will say that we we had some help. Uh, Jamie and Jennifer helped. Uh, I, did, I did a reading. Kristen's done them. So it's not just us today. We got some help in recording these, and we might have put a little production into them, too. So I think you're going to really like what we have, plus... Plus, also, we're going to have Halloween trivia. We have a couple of our auditors coming on. Stephanie and April will be on at 9.30 to do a little Halloween trivia. We're going to test their knowledge. And we haven't done trivia in a while, so that'll be a lot of fun. And then we'll have more stories for you after that as well. Well, why don't we, why don't you, do you want to just get right into one? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. This story was read by Jamie, and it's called The Man in the Hay Barn by Rita Brown. And I think you're going to enjoy this one. And I think every horse person is also going to relate to this one. So here we go. The Man in the Hay Barn by Rita Brown, based on a true story. The angry night sky rumbled with thunder and flashed with lightning. No, I grumbled back equally angry. It had been a long day. The thought of leaving the comfort of my bed made me miserable. But there was no choice. All 16 horses were out in the pastures with trees and metal roofed run-in sheds and some had shoes on, perfect lightning rods. I sighed, threw on some clothes, and headed out into the night. It wasn't the rain that bothered me. It wasn't even trying to round up the horses in the dark that bothered me. It was the fact that I could not turn the lights on in the barn that bothered me. Recently, a few of the plexiglass skylights had begun to leak when it rained. The overhead lights had been mounted too close to said skylights, so turning them on when it was raining could cause them to short out, spark, and a fire to break out. Needless to say, that would be bad. As I walked back and forth from pasture to pasture, horse to horse, I tried to tell myself I wouldn't need the lights in the barn. I tried to convince myself that my crazy helper, Lori, bless her 80-year-old soul, would have left the water buckets full, waiting for a thirsty horse to come into the stall for a drink. Tonight, of all nights, or a very early morning, as I was pretty sure my bleary eyes saw 3.43 on the clock as I pulled on my glamorous outfit of a nightgown, yoga pants, and knee-high muck boots, she had to have left the buckets alone. I had tucked all the mares into their stalls and then tucked all the ponies and minis into theirs before I dared look. It was difficult to see in the dark, so I stuck a hand into a bucket dry. Maybe it's just this bucket, I thought optimistically. I stuck my hand into another bucket dry, handed to a bucket dry. I repeated this a couple more times before I conceded to the fact that Lori had indeed dumped out every water bucket earlier that day. They'll get yucky if you leave them full. I could hear her voice in my head. I leave them full so when I bring in all the horses for breakfast, they have something to drink. Once they're done breakfast, I dump, clean, and refill each bucket. They don't get dirty that fast. I must have argued a million times with her about it, but I was just the barn manager. What did I know? With another heavy sigh, I headed back out into the rain to get the geldings. I saved the boys for last. I knew that they would be the most difficult to convince to come in. Actually, out of the six boys, only three were going to be an issue. The three halflingers, who I affectionately call Halflinger Nation. 
They were the most stubborn, most problematic, and most crazy geldings I had had the pleasure of taking care of. I loved them so much in spite of their attitude. They never ceased to make me laugh with their antics, and they also seemed to rejoice any time it rained. While the other boys would be crowded into the running shed, Halflinger Nation would be galloping, jumping, and bucking enthusiastically as though a summer storm needed celebration. Convincing them to leave the cooling rain, no matter how hard it was coming down, would be a challenge. I was not in the mood for a challenge. Once the other boys were secure in their stalls, I went immediately to bribery for the halflingers. I filled a green bucket up halfway and headed out into the pasture. I opened the gate, hollered at the crazy ones, and shook the bucket. The rain had picked up and the thunder was so loud now that it took them a little longer to hear my shouts and the sweet sound of promised grain. But once a gelding heard it, he ran towards the gate and once one started, the others followed. At least halflinger nation was predictable. I headed into the barn with the hungry halflingers on my heels. They knew their stalls and obediently went into them, knowing they would be rewarded for their good behavior. As I got more grain for the other horses, I sighed in relief. That went better than expected. Thunder rumbled across the wicked night again, and I grumbled again right along with it. I had to fill the water buckets in the dark in a thunderstorm. The rain was making the temperature drop, so I concluded that they would only need one full bucket each. Besides, I'd be out there again feeding breakfast in a few hours. So I got the hose and got to work. As I went slowly from stall to stall filling buckets, my mind began to focus on other things. I actually loved a good thunderstorm, and this one was a doozy. The thunder was almost deafening, the lightning sharp and bright, and the rain was dumping so hard that I could barely hear myself think. Then again, anyone with a tin-roofed barn knows that the rain echoes. It's such a beautiful thump. I shook my head. I couldn't have heard a thump. There it was again, a thump on the roof. Oh, I must be more tired than I realized. I'm hallucinating sounds on the roof. I shook my head again, kept filling the water buckets. There was nothing on the roof, and I knew it, especially not in this storm. And as I continued to slowly fill the buckets, my mood improved. Just ten more just nine more it was getting better okay that was definitely a thump on the roof that made no sense in this rain with this wind there was no possible way anything could be on the roof the man in the hay barn i heard my friend Catherine's voice in my head there is no man in the hay barn i had exclaimed a dozen times she would just smile back at me the man in the hay barn the majority of the farm's hay was stored in a large shed behind the main barn, which everyone called the hay barn. The myth of the man in the hay barn had been created to explain why Tack went missing, why things would be found out of place, or any other unexplained thing that occurred. He was also to blame for everyone's irrational fear of wandering around the farm at night without the lights on. You never know who's looking around, I'd be told. Oh my God, I would declare. There's nobody around. Shut off the lights when you leave. But it would never happen. There's a man in the hay barn. I laughed, knowing everyone would insist the man in the hay barn was on the roof. I shook my head and laughed again, but this time it was a nervous laugh. I heard the thump again. It was moving. Oh, Rita, you've seen too many horror films. There's nothing out there. But the thumps were indeed on the move. I'd been filling buckets from the back of the barn to the front as usual, and the thumps were traveling in the opposite direction. They weren't moving quickly, but they were definitely moving. I heard a couple more thumps, and my heartbeat increased. Rita, don't be silly. There's no man in the hay barn. But certainly, something was thumping on the roof, and it continued its slow movement towards the back of the barn. 
Come on, hose, fill up those buckets faster. I listened closely as I filled the final bucket, but heard nothing. See, you were just being silly. It's the middle of the night, it's storming hard, and your imagination is on overdrive. I felt stupid, of course. There isn't anything on the barn roof. Duh. I proceeded to walk around to every stall and say goodnight to each horse individually, as was the routine, and I began to shout my goodnight to the barn cats. A particularly loud crack of thunder and a bright flash of lightning made me and a few of the horses jump. I laughed at myself. Man in the hay barn. I shook my head again at my own silliness. Time to get out of these wet clothes and back into... It was loud and quick this time. Thump, thump. Okay, that does it, I told the horses. This is ridiculous. There's nothing out there. I stomped to the back of the barn, unhooked the back door, and slid it sideways just enough for me to go outside. I walked as far back as I could to look up at the roof. Nothing. Well, of course, there's nothing. I shook my head again. I don't know how I could let my imagination get the better of me. Lightning lit up the sky again. Thunder boomed all around, and I stood there a moment to take it all in. Even though a thunderstorm meant waking in the middle of the night to do more work, I loved him. But there was nothing like a summer storm in the dark at night. I sighed again, but this time more contentedly. Life was imperfect, but wonderful, and I was blessed to do a job I loved so much. And little peaceful moments like this. I jumped out of my skin. Something is out there! The barn. I had to get back inside the barn. The door was only a few steps away. But my effort was futile. The attacker landed on me. Ah! screamed in vain. There was no one even remotely within earshot. I thrashed violently, trying to get my attacker off me. I felt part of it was on me, cool and wet from the rain, and I used all the strength I could muster. Finally, I flung my attacker off me and braced in case I was attacked again. (coughs) Hissed angrily. Meow. I stared in disbelief as one of the barn cats glanced at me. Mickey, I screamed at him. You scared me up to death. You're on the roof. Why would you be on the roof in a thunderstorm, you dumb cat? Mickey ran quickly away from me into the dry sanctuary of the barn. My heart was beating outside my chest. I couldn't believe I didn't have a heart attack. Stupid cat. I almost died because the cat scared me. I need a drink. I quickly said goodnight again to all the horses as a collective, and I walked to the front of the door to head back to the house to a much-needed drink. Darn cat. Now I understood why my boyfriend doesn't like cats. Good night, I repeated as I got to the door. There it was again on the roof and on the move, and this time the sound was coming towards me. I flung open the van door and ran as fast as possible to the house. If anyone asked, I ran because it was raining. (laughs) Rita Brown, the man in the haybard. Well read, Jamie. Well read. I got to tell you, we have all been there on the barn at night at three o'clock in the morning when it's spooky. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. am, am I wrong? All of us have been there when we hear sounds that you're not quite sure what they are and you thought you do all the sounds in your barn. Yep. Yeah. And you're like, I gotta go. I got- <laughs> <laughs> Good night. <laughs> we do have one spooky story. <clears throat> this is kind of morbid, but it is Halloween, right? So, mm-hmm. so we come out in the morning one morning, and and it was before before light. It was like six o'clock, and we had a lot of horses then. This is a big barn. It was a bank barn. You know what they are in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> we went outside, and we had ha- we probably had six or seven cats. I don't get to tell this story much because it's so morbid. Um, so we we had six or seven cats. Well, we come out into the barn. It's dark. It's six o'clock in the morning. All the horses are in. They're all winning, waiting for their food. And we find a dead cat who had been like ripped to shreds. 
in the aisle of the barn. And then we said, oh, this isn't good. So this is in the aisle of the barn downstairs, in the lower bank barn. The upper bank barn is used for hay. So we said, ugh, we better start looking around. We find a second dead cat. Uh-oh. This one with no evidence, no evidence of how it died, just dead, <clears throat> and obviously pretty recently dead. So then we we get brave. <laughs> I don't know why how we got brave, but we get brave. And light had just started coming up, and we're like, okay, this is. We checked all the horses. All the horses were okay, but you know, it's one of those things you you think, okay, we got to investigate where the other cats are, but you don't really want to. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> You're like, can't you because just whatever's taking care of these cats could still be here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we knew we had to go upstairs, and we heard something upstairs. Well, there was a stairway that went up, like one of those steep stairways that are in barns that go to the second floor, <clears throat> just wooden planks. And we're like, mm, we got to go up and stick our head out of that. So let's go around. So we chose to walk around and come up to the top of the bank barn. And as we're, the doors were open. And as we're coming up to the top of the bank barn, this creature comes out of the barn and runs right past us about two feet away. And what it turned out to be was a coyote that was completely infested with mange. Oh, man. So it was hairless and had scabs all over its body. Oh, so it looked like a monster. It looked like a monster. It looked like <laughs> oh, no. something you would see in a horror movie coming out of the top of the barn and and just ran right past us. Uh, well, And you screamed like a little girl. Yes, right? both of us did that. Yeah, that was because <laughs> it was just getting light. I mean, it was just, oh. So we see this thing coming out of the top of the barn. We both scream and jump because, you know, of course, we didn't think to go in and get a gun or anything. So we go into the barn and three more of the cats were dead. So then we looked it up and discovered that when you have a mangy critter like that, they tend to kill them, but then forget to eat them because they're just their brains are gone. Mm. So they they'll kill a bunch of things, but then never eat it. And and then we did find it two days later, dead along one of the fence lines. And that's it, what I was going to ask. Did it, you have to? Oh, it was find gross. It well, yeah. we were we did take a look around that day. We did arm ourselves and take a look around that day by horseback, actually. Because it was 100 acres, so it was a big farm. And uh, we did find it then two days later, just dead along one of the fence lines. And it was gross. I mean, gross. (laughs) Yeah. All right. You have any good horror stories for us from the barn? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, we had a bank barn. uh, The barn I Why is it always bank barns, too? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's always those big Pennsylvania bank barns, man. Yeah, because I grew up outside of Philadelphia. And um, it was an old barn, and of course... I don't know how true this was, but all the lesson kids, we told each other that, like, oh, the barn was around since the Revolutionary War, and there was a neighborhood legend that um, a bunch of um, revolutionaries had hung a a Tory sympathizer at the old mill across the street. So there was an old mill house with, you know, still a water wheel in the basement that would turn. Um, So that was all spooky. So, you know, of course, if anyone was there after dark, we're like, the Tory's going to come and get you. I don't think anyone ever actually saw anything. But, you know, when you're eight or nine, it was a really good way to terrify the crap out of each other. Yeah. (laughs) And you did always look over your shoulder at night, didn't you? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If anything, like, fell over and nobody was standing by, you know, it'd be like, that bucket just fell over. The Tory's here. You know, and everybody was run away so why do we do this to each other i don't know i don't know don't yeah know. especially like at the tender young age of single yeah. digits it's not very nice yeah and it's always like when you're going camping like boy scouts were good for reading the you know telling the horror stories right before you're about to camp in a tent 
Right. Yeah. yeah. You're alone in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That nylon wall is really going to protect you. Well, let's uh, let's do another story, and this one you're going to read live on the air. So I, I have. Yes. To, uh, let me see. Do, let me see if I have some sound effects I can give you to get started. Oh, is this a spooky story? What kind of story is this? This is a little bit of a spooky story. All right. Well, then we'll do this song called Halloween Hell. This is the tale of the witch's knot. Jessie looped the lead rope back over her shoulder as she double-checked the chain on the gate by feel, her eyes following the pale shape of the thin horse they had named Gold Dust as he ambled away into the night to find his pasture mates. She volunteered three nights a week at Rainbow Horse Rescue, savoring the moments spent helping horses find their feet again as she shaved up money for a horse of her own, thanks to a decent day job she had luckily landed right out of college. Satisfied that the gate was secure, she was about to turn back towards the brightly lit barn when a voice out of the darkness made her jump. He's looking better already. Sarah, the proprietor of Rainbow, emerged out of the rapidly falling night to nod towards Gold Dust's pasture. Jessie fell into stride next to Sarah, and the two women headed into the bright barn together, Jessie to hang up the halter and lead, and Sarah to check on the few residents currently stalled. Whenever the conditions were right, Sarah liked to have the rescued horses living out full-time believing that the horse was designed to move freely and socialize with his friends in order to recover from whatever path had brought them to Rainbow. A few of the more delicate cases were currently stalled. Jasper, a pony recovering from the removal of a cancerous tumor in one eye, and Burgundy, a lanky thoroughbred mare bouncing back from an abscess. He is looking better, Jesse agreed, referring to gold dust. It just breaks my heart, though. How could someone do that to a horse? The aged gelding had arrived six weeks prior, nearly skin and bones with overgrown hooves and a matted mane. After his quarantine and his introduction into the gelding herd, he had started picking up weight considerably. It took me forever to comb out those dreadlocks. I can't believe no one loved this horse. He's such a sweetie. Sarah, satisfied that both Jasper and Burgundy were situated for the night, turned to Jesse with a smile. It's easy to hate, isn't it? You never heard where gold dust came from. Jesse sighed inwardly. Sarah, for all the horrible things she had seen in Running Rainbow for the past two decades, was somehow still as patient as a saint. Gold Dust was owned by an old couple, and it was the husband who did most of the work in the barn. Gold Dust was their last remaining horse, and the husband still came out every day and groomed him until he gleamed, even though he was too stiff and old to ride. And then the husband had a stroke, and in the weeks of hospital stays and eventually hospice at home, poor Gold Dust was forgotten. After the funeral, the wife called us for help, and she cried and cried when we came to take the horse away. He was the last living link to her husband. Jessie felt a flush rise in her cheeks. A little embarrassed now, she had grumbled about someone intentionally starving the horse. Well, she should have called sooner, she offered, not meeting Sarah's eyes. Sarah smiled and eased herself down onto a hay bale at the edge of the feed stall. Do you know the story about the first horse I rescued here? Jessie shook her head, silently seating herself on the floor at the base of Burgundy's stall door. She felt the mare's warm breath on the top of her head and slowly reached a hand up to stroke the horse's muzzle. There was no rescue in this county for large animals, Sarah began. So I was shocked one night after doing the night feeding for the two riding horses I kept here in this barn when the cops drove up and wanted to talk to me. They had a horse that needed help and they were looking for someone to take it in and take care of it. They thought it was a long shot since they knew most folks around here didn't have much to spare to take in another horse to feed. But I thought I could make it work. And that's how Lucky made his way here. He was skinny as a rail and his feet were long and his mane was all tangles, just like gold dust. 
and I was just like you. I spent hours coming out, those twists and knots, carefully grooming his shabby coat, watching as, with the good feed carefully applied and the love and the attention, he bloomed again into a handsome fellow. I ended up keeping him, but that got the ball rolling on turning this place into a rescue and helping horses out of bad situations and into good homes. Jesse smiled while wondering what the story had to do with gold dust. The funny thing was, with Lucky, every morning when I went out to feed, he'd have all those tangles all twisted up in his mane again. Sarah looked sideways at Jesse. Didn't you comb out gold dust's mane the first day? Jesse nodded, a bit defensively. Well, he was all tangles again the next day. Lots of horses here get those tangles. You know, you spend enough time grooming them and making them feel loved again. Sarah had a point, Jesse realized. There were a lot of tangled manes to contend with. Sarah chuckled and looked down at the floor, twisting a stray piece of hay between her fingers. Yeah, they're probably just from the wind, but legend calls those witches' knots. If you see them in the morning, it means a witch came and visited that horse in the night. Normally, Jesse would have laughed, but there was something about Sarah's tone, her lack of eye contact, that made the hairs on the back of Jesse's neck stand up. I was like you then, Sarah continued. I was so angry at whoever had done this to poor Lucky. He was just a horse. He had no say in the matter, and someone had treated him like garbage and basically left him to die. The cops never really told me much information about where Lucky came from, but after enough years of me pestering them for information, he was a lovely ride when I finally got around to settling him up. They finally told me the whole story. Lucky had been owned by an older woman who lived all alone, down on that granite hollow road. You know the one? Jesse nodded. Local lore said that the lady that lived there was a little odd, liked her privacy. The kids used to try to creep each other out with stories about the haunted old hag that lived back there. Usually, though, people driving by never thought much about the little house tucked away into the woods. But they did notice the pretty dark bay horse in the pasture that would stand in the shade on a summer's day and watch the cars go by. And they did notice when he got skinny, and someone finally called the police when he was really far gone and the ground was all covered in snow and there was no more grass room to eat. The police came by the house and they found it empty, almost like it was abandoned, but nothing was missing. There were dirty dishes in the sink, laundry in the basket, but no sign of the woman at all. It was like she had just disappeared. They searched the property and they found nothing, just a quiet little homestead all covered up in snow. But when they brought a dog around, he found her. It looked like the woman had maybe gone out to feed one day and slipped and fell and broke her hip, and she didn't have a cell phone to call for help. The saddest part to me was that they figured out, I don't know how, she had tried to drag herself along for a ways, but not towards the house. She was trying to get to the barn, like she knew the horse needed her, and the cold must have finally done her in. Jessie sat in silence, a heaviness in her chest. Well, Sarah said after a moment, I felt pretty badly about my unkind thoughts. And I made a vow the day I finally got that whole story to withhold my judgment. Every horse that's come through this barn has a story, and sometimes those stories will break your heart, but not always in the way you expect. Sarah smiled to herself before rising up off the hay bale, offering Jessie a hand to pull her to her feet. I don't say it enough, but thank you for your help around here, Jessie. This place wouldn't run without volunteers. The pair moved down the aisle together, Sarah flicking off the lights as they headed to the big barn door. As her eyes adjusted to the darkness, Jessie could make out the shapes of the gelding herd in the pasture adjacent to the barn, the pale presence of gold dust among them. For a moment, Jessie stared, trying to identify a darker, smaller shape among the horses before shaking her head. It was nothing. Look for those witches' knots tomorrow, Sarah said quietly, making Jessie jump again. We're not the only ones watching over these horses. You got some shivers there, Glenn? Jeez, 
They're well written, by the way. Well couple, written. Couple goosebumps. Thank well you. <laughs> well done. Was that taken from a true story, by the way? That was not. I do tend to get some witches' knots, though, in my pasture. So, uh, sure, they're not <clears> just so brambles. Yeah, not just brambles. It's only after a rainy, windy night. So, I bet I probably got some this morning. Cause <laughs> windy here last night. So, and did they find a lady dead next door? Uh, well, no, and I got to be careful because the horse that gets the witch's knots actually belongs to my mother. So every time I see them, <laughs> yes. I give her a call, make sure she's doing okay. <laughs> Mom? <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> hey, Mom. Shout out to my mom. Yeah. If you're listening. <laughs> Moms never listen. We're good. Yeah, good, good, good. She'll listen later and be like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we did. Have you ever encountered a ghost? Ah, uh, I think I may have. It's one of those, like, you know, something spooky happens, and at the time you're like, oh, that was weird. And later you're like, no, wait a minute, that was weird. So the uh, the house where my husband and my sister-in-law grew up, um, his in-laws still live there. It's an older house. Um, and, of course, they're like, it's haunted. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. You guys just had overactive imaginations growing up. Um and then, you know, they tell me stories when they were younger and the first time they were allowed to stay home alone overnight, they heard boots coming up the stairs and and walking back and forth. Um, and uh, so, you know, just like stuff moving around in the house. Um, and I was there one night just sitting on the couch and I saw out of the corner of my eye what I thought was my husband coming down the stairs. Um, and then they just never, he never quite made it all the way down. Um, and then he came out of another room and I was like, wait a minute, weren't you just coming down the stairs? And he goes, no, I've been over here the whole time. So it's one of those like out of the corner of your eye kind mm. of a thing. So, so maybe, or maybe I was just really tired. I don't know. <laughs> Were you drinking? I just have to ask. Uh, no, I wasn't. So, you know, maybe that was the problem. Maybe I should have been drinking. <laughs> I just had to ask, you know. What about you? Seen anything spooky other than your mangy coyote? Uh, yeah, we we uh, we actually did have a ghost in the one house we lived in. I'll tell you about that. But now it's time for Halloween trivia. We're going to get a couple of our auditors on now. Jennifer is not with us this morning. Uh, she is working on another project, so we have to call them live on the air here. Uh, we haven't played trivia in a while, so this is going to. We're going to trying to get uh, auditor Stephanie on. We'll see if we can get her on. I think Stephanie's New York City, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure she is. She probably has some. Sp- she's probably done some spooky things, and uh, every day is kind of spooky in New York City, actually. So yeah, you never know. <laughs> you never know what you're going to see. <laughs> so I'm trying to get her on here. I have to call them live. Hello. Hello, Stephanie. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Are you ready to play some Halloween trivia with Kristen and I? I am. You're you're on the air now. If you're on a uh, if you're on a speaker, we have to have you come off the speaker. Oh, you're just on my. It's not a speaker. It's my like headset. Is that bad? Yeah, it's uh, pretty bad actually. Is so, that better? Yeah, much better. Very good. Well, welcome. Are you on a construction site? <laughs> I am. And- we can hear it. <laughs> so I can close. I'm going to close fun. myself in a bedroom. Hold on. <laughs> we'll explain. Stephanie okay. is a uh, interior decor designer, architect, designer, yeah. Yeah. Currently working for um, high end renovations. So in New York City. Yeah. Yep. Well, before we get April on, I got to ask you the question I just asked Kristen. Have you ever come across your own ghost? 
Did we lose you? No. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, you're, uh, unfortunately, Stephanie, you're breaking up on us really bad now that you went in the other room. This is the, this is, yeah, it's not good. Oh, no, I have like four bars. Hey, here. Go toward the window. Can you hear me? Yeah, now it's a little I've, bit. I've, you know, okay, is this better? That's a little better, yep. Okay. Sorry, anyway, so I... I, I Stephanie, Stephanie, I hate to do this to you, but it is not good. Oh, no. Okay. The spirits are messing with the phone. I think the ghosts are messing with us here. My bars right now, it's Yeah. He has just choppy. We're getting like every other word or every third word. I'll tell you what, Stephanie, is there any other place you can go closer in a different spot? Uh, Yeah, you know what, let me... um. All right, and I'll try and get April on while you're doing that. Okay, sorry. Okay. All right, no problem. No problem. All right, let's uh, try and get April on here while Stephanie's finding a better place to go. So this is going to be April, who is in California right now. So she is getting up mighty early to do this. <laughs> well, that is very, very nice of her. Yes. So uh, I think Stephanie <laughs> will have an advantage if we can get her line cleared up, because April's just going to be sleepy. So <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie's going to be sharp as a tack. Yeah. yeah. Poor <laughs> April's going to be like, oh, wait a minute. Stephanie's probably climbing 85 uh, flights to the roof right now, <laughs> trying to get a better <laughs> <Yes>. signal. <laughs> Trivia! i got to go! <laughs> Obviously at work. So we'll Hello. See. Good morning, April. It's Kristen and Glenn. How are you? I'm good. How are y'all? Good. So uh you excited to play some Halloween trivia with us? Yes, I want to try my best. I'm not really good at trivia, so this could be um pretty rough. Well, you hey, know, that's even better fun, because right? it makes it funnier. We can laugh at you then. So that's yeah, perfect. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> that's my job, providing <laughs> entertainment. That's right. And you're in California right now? I am in California for work, so left the great state of Texas and get to spend a week on the Central Coast. And and what do you do, can I ask? Yeah, I'm an audit manager for Monterey Mushrooms, uh, a company that has 10 facilities across the U.S. that grows mushrooms for the stores. And does it grow in horse poop? Um, well, actually some. The compost starts out with straw from the racetracks. And um, others, it's wheat straw. So it just kind of depends. Jennifer grew up and actually worked her working student stint in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, which is like mushroom capital of the world. And yes. uh, yeah, yeah, so totally all good. of the manure went for mushroom <laughs> growth over there. Uh, it does. Exactly. That's a convenient place to send it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and we have you guys for it. this any better? Oh, that's better, Stephanie. Yay, we can hear you again. Oh, you know, you know, it might actually be spirits because the building that I'm working in right now is like over a hundred years old. It was an old hotel, and now it's like you know oh, that's got to have some ghosts. You know what? Department. I 18, bet you. I'm, I'm actually in the lobby. 1877 was when it was built. So. It's got to be haunted, right? And you went into a, a yeah. She went How into awful. a bedroom, and her signal went away. I'm sure somebody was murdered in that room. I'm but sure. I had it. four bars, so like there was no explanation for why I had no signal. In it's there. the ghost. And I made a million phone calls. It's Halloween. It is. It's the ghost of the murdered lady. How did I automatically assume <laughs> it was a lady? Communication. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, let's uh, let's play some Halloween trivia, guys. And you're, uh, it's April playing Stephanie here. We have five questions each for you guys. There's no prize, by the way, other than you're the Halloween champion. That's your prize. <laughs> Bragging right. that works for me. Yeah, yeah, we have we have really no prize. Um, so this is <laughs> what I'm going to play for the right answer. Oh, wait a minute. I got to turn my volume up. Let's try that again. So the right answer will be this. Oh, no, it isn't. Let's try this again. See, the ghosts are with us this morning. Oh, no. That's the right answer. Wrong answer. (laughs) Okay. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kristen, you're up. uh, I'm sorry. Which one was the right answer? The gong was the right answer? That's the right answer. Wrong answer. (laughs) That's wrong answer. Okay. All right. So uh, we'll start with Stephanie, and Kristen's going to ask. All right. First question. Okay. In Ireland and Scotland, what vegetable was traditionally carved for jack-o'-lantern? Squash. Oh, that's close. Can we give her that one? Mm, No. No? No. 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 A gourd? (laughs) Sorry. I also work part-time at a farm stand, so you cannot try to tell me that it's the same as a root vegetable. (laughs) It was the turnip. She's a meanie. Oh, wow. A part-time farmer. No. (laughs) So you guys better get the vegetable questions right because she's going to be thinking about this. There's a lot of produce questions today, people. So (laughs) April has an advantage. She's in the mushroom industry. All right. (laughs) Stephanie, no points for Stephanie. All right, April, you're up. All right. In what decade did trick-or-treating become a widespread practice in the United States? Uh, oh gosh, before I was born, um, I'm going to say the fifties. <laughs> Glenn's having too much fun. I with am. Sound effect. <laughs> yeah. The 1930s. 1930s. The 1930s, which is interesting because that was also the great depression. So I'm not sure how or why that worked out, but, but yeah, yeah. Came, originally started in the 1920s, became really widespread in the thirties. Treating. So there you go. History. All right, so we're zero to zero, and Stephanie is up next. You guys are batting a thousand here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, what was the name of the horse that Ichabod Crane rode in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow? Oh, I know this one. Sleepy Hollow is right up the street. Yes, it is. Oh. Oh. You're going to kick yourself, too. I am. Too, I know. Yeah. Yeah. When uh, you hear it, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I'll take a pass. Just gunpowder. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I totally. And you know, it's it. funny. I just read that story like last year, just out of curiosity to read the whole story. You know. Yeah. Because um, I've driven through Sleepy Hollow so many times. Well, you're going to hear a little wow, bit about cool. Ichabod here later on. He's going to make an appearance oh, later on in the show. Back. Yeah. All right. So, April, right. your chance to take the lead okay. here. <laughs> okay. Yeah, in try. pounds, in pounds, how much candy is sold for Halloween annually? Yeah, and I'll, I'll give you anywhere close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like. In pounds. Uh, Jeez, I don't. I, 1.5 million. <laughs> no. That's not close. <laughs> 600 million pounds. 600 million. Oh my God. <laughs> so much candy. 
Oh, my gosh. By the way, if you have yeah, any complaints yeah. about these questions, send them to Jennifer at HorseRadioNetwork.com. She didn't make them, but you can send the complaints to her. There'll be Kristen that you blame <laughs> yeah, for this yeah. today. No, I just... I'm uh, going to be sending a strongly worded email. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, yes, we're back to Stephanie, still zero zero. Okay, according to an old superstition, a person born on Halloween has this special power. Um, uh, so, uh, not telekinetic, but tele- telepathy? Well, to who? <laughs> Sorry, what? To, to whom? Oh, to, to the dead. Yeah, we'll get that. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! We got an answer right. With a little help, but we got an answer right. <laughs> yeah, so if you have a friend with a Halloween birthday, they have the power to see and speak to the dead. There you so. go. Interesting. Yeah. According to superstition, yep. yes. Yep. I don't know any of those. Yeah, I don't know anybody that with might be just anybody well. with Halloween birthdays in the auditor group today. I don't know. I didn't look. I know a lot of people close. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Not mine. Yeah, I'm looking. Uh, I'm looking to see, and I I don't see any actually. So uh, we so we can't get any help today. <laughs> Talk to our dead relatives. <laughs> All right, Stephanie takes the lead, one to zero. It's your chance to tie it up here, April. All right, April. Okay, okay. how much money is spent annually on Halloween costumes for pets? And I have how much uh, money spent? Yeah, for pets, and I have a multiple choice here for you. So it's a hundred million, three hundred and fifty million, or one billion dollars. Oh, I'm going to go three hundred fifty million. Let's go with the middle one. Yay! Ah, yay! <laughs> yay! April ties it up <laughs> one to one. On That's great. That's a ton mm. of money to spend on a Halloween yeah. costume. That's pet. huge. But that I figured out. it's you know. <laughs> I bet you in another five years, it's going to be a billion. (laughs) Just the way it's going. (laughs) That is a lot of money. (laughs) All right. So uh, we are back. Two more questions left. It's tied one all. And we're back to Stephanie, who's in the haunted hotel in New York City. (laughs) All right, Stephanie. In New England, Halloween is also known as a different night on which neighbors leave a certain rotting vegetable on each other's porches. What is that vegetable? Cabbage night. Oh my yes. God! <laughs> she knew that one. <laughs> I had never heard of that. Well, I'm New England. So How'd you know that? I'm from New England. Thing? I grew up in Connecticut. It's a time-honored tradition. Do they really do so, it? Have you done I, that? No, we don't actually do cabbage. What we do is go and take toilet paper and do everybody's trees, and you know, some people throw eggs. I was never really into that. And shaving cream. You know, you know how to pin a can of shaving cream so you could shoot it out like a gun. And yeah, cabbage night was the night before that you reeked. Havoc everywhere, huh. basically. Huh. That knew? must have traveled to Pennsylvania awesome. because where I grew up, we called that mischief night. Yeah. We did the night before. Oh, and yeah. that's where you well, do that the, the TP. Why, and, the... and you know what? Actually, I never knew why they called it Cabbage Night until just now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if you had not asked everybody that learned question, something, I never would have known. <laughs> yeah. There we go. The produce questions, man. So educational. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Coming from Farmer Kristen. <laughs> All right, so we are two to one, and your chance to tie it up there, okay. April. This is right. not not quite a produce question, but close. Okay, without okay. looking, unless you happen to have this in your hand, from base to tip, what is the order of color on a candy corn? Uh, 
that kind of brownish white and then orange. Or can I, can I get a the darker, the white, and the yellow. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Start over. I'm, now I'm confused. So, <laughs> so what would you say from the bottom up? From the tip? Yeah, from base to tip. Base to, to tip. All right, April, try it again. Base to tip. Wait, so from from the skinny part to the wide part? No, wide part to the skinny part. Okay, so that's the um, the darker kind of orange and then white and then like yellow. <sighs> Oh, I'm backwards. (laughs) So what was it, Kristen? Could you make this any more confusing, by the way? The wide part is yellow, and then it's orange in the middle, and then the white tip. Uh, Now, if I really want to make it confusing, there is an Indian corn variety that has brown in there somewhere. That just, I threw that one out. That was confusing. Okay, raise hands. Who likes likes candy corn? Anybody? How are you going to no. know? You know it used to be hand. my favorite as a kid, but I probably made myself sick of it, sick over it enough times that like it actually makes me nauseous when I kind of see it. Yeah, I'm with you. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was into it as a kid. And it's kind of like eating one. wax. Yeah, earwax. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so <laughs> <laughs> no wonder Glenn hates Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this uh, so we have Stephanie in the lead with one more question. It's two yes. to one. April, if she gets this first one wrong, you can tie it up. So here That's we right. go. This is for Stephanie. All right, Stephanie, what is the least popular Halloween candy? Uh, <laughs> popcorn. <laughs> That's probably pretty bad. Too. It should have been. It should have been. <laughs> That mean house that gives out the pencils. That's my least favorite. <laughs> uh, the official answer, according to survey, is the circus peanut, Does, which is wretched. Oh, so yeah, those are pretty those. bad, too. Oh. Yeah. And those little things, the little shells on them get stuck in your teeth, and it's like, ugh. Yeah, I'm with you on the circus peanut. Do you know what that <laughs> means? She has a chance to catch up. And... No, no pressure. Yeah, this last one is an audio version, Uh, and I'm gonna—I'm just gonna ask you of what what decade of age are you? And no, you're not supposed to ask that, April. But it's the only chance you have of getting this one right is if you're over forty. Well, forty-three, so close. All right, I'm gonna play you a (laughs) snippet of a theme song of a cartoon, and you have to tell us what cartoon it is. Here we go. Okay. Guess? You want to hear it again? Um, yes, one more time. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know. I'm going to go with the, the cartoon version of Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Ah, <laughs> but I will let Stephanie try and guess it. Do you know it, Stephanie? I was going to say, didn't Charlie Brown have a, a Halloween theme thing? Yeah, he did. But this goes back even further uh, yeah. than that to my old age. And I'll play it and you're going to die because you're going to know what it is. Let me play the rest. Great. Casper, the friendly ghost, the friendliest ghost. Oh my god! I'm 40, so I must have just missed that cutoff. Casper, I remember Casper, but not that. (laughs) Ah. We uh, determined that Casper was first published what in the 20s? Was it? 
Yeah, I think the they had a, wow. a cartoon book, and then it became a like an animated cartoon in the 30s. Yeah, and then it has been remade about 85 times over the years. Gasper has, and now he's mocking you both. <laughs> Well, that's great, <laughs> Stephanie. You win. <laughs> you win. You win our love and adoration, Stephanie. That's what the you win. Building did not defeat me. No, it did not. But be careful. Maybe it helped. You know what? In that bedroom you were just in, where the murder took place, you might want to make that a themed room. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't a bedroom before. It was just wide open space. So. Oh, well, we then built the Lord knows what oh, happened you know, in that room. You know, it's interesting that I'm standing in the lobby now because I'm looking at all of the old photos of, like, before this building was here and then when the building was here and then, like, one with, like, the trolley going by. So I'm going to take some pictures and post them for you guys. All right, good. Do that. Pretty <laughs> cool. Pretty cool. Good. Yeah. Well, and thank- it looks like a haunted building. Like, it is a very gothic. So. You have a cool job, Stephanie. You really do. Um, I do. Yes, I do. You do. Well, thank you, both of you, for playing. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate you stopping by. Bye, guys. Thank All you. Right. Happy Halloween. Take care. Well, we're going to get to our next story here. But uh, I first wanted to tell you that we did have a ghost in the house that Jennifer and I bought. It was a big house. It was like 5,000 square feet. Why we bought it, I don't know. There were only two of us. And it was like 22 rooms. There were five bathrooms. It had a business space in it, which where we had our tax shop when we owned a tax business in Pennsylvania, actually, central Pennsylvania. And it had de- what we determined was it ha- had been built originally. The road that we lived on was an old highway. Now, it wasn't, it was a back road when we lived there, but it, back in the early 1800s, it was a major highway between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. So the house had been built as an old rooming house in the early 1800s. <clears throat> now, it had been added on to about 16 times, but the main part of the house was an old rooming house. Well, we would, it was really weird, Kristen, because you would walk in certain parts of the house, you'd come downstairs and you'd be in the living room, and it would be warm or whatever, and then you'd walk into this freezing cold spot that was about four feet across. It would be freezing cold, and it would smell like cookies baking. It was the weirdest thing, and then you'd walk out of it, and you'd go back, and it'd be gone. And you would experience that every other day or so in different parts of the house. It would be freezing cold, and it would smell like cookies baking. And cookies. And then it would disappear. So... We, we thought, okay, what's going on here? And it just kept happening. And then visitors, people who came to visit would discover it and say, did you know there's a cold spot in your house? And we'd go over and the cold spot was gone. So it was the weirdest thing. We just didn't know what was going on. Then we had, we had employees to run the tax shop. They all started experiencing these cold spots and the immense, the immense smell of cookies baking. It was intense cookies baking. And we finally had the air conditioner people come out because we thought the air conditioner was screwed up and was sending out smells or cold. I don't know. We didn't know what to put a cookie. Yeah, we didn't know what to do with that. And they thought we were like insane. Um, And, you know, I don't know if they really ever checked the air conditioning because they pretty much thought we were insane. So uh, they said, there's nothing wrong with your air conditioner. It seems to be working just fine and everything. No smells. It's okay. So then we did find out later on and doing some reading at the library that a woman had died that was like the cook at this house. 
And so we named her Agnes, and Agnes lived with us for the entire time we lived at that house. We would experience Agnes several times a week, and everybody that stayed with us met Agnes at one point or another. Uh, so we just called her Agnes. Now, she was a friendly ghost, like Casper. And yeah, I think that's making cookies. Uh, yeah, she was making cookies. Now, we ever got to eat any of the cookies, by the way. I want to say that she never left them around, which would have been better if we'd had a ghost that actually left the cookies. Well, but, I don't, would you want to have eaten a ghost cookie? You would have tried it. Tell me you that wouldn't have seem, tried it. Well, Tell me you wouldn't have tried it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our See, ghost See, when story. you were saying that it was, you know, on the old highway, I was like, oh, my God, the Toll House cookie lady. The person that invented <laughs> right. the Toll House that's cookie. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this is where she came from. <laughs> so there you go. That's our ghost story of Agnes. Oh. Lived in our house. Very cool. The cookie ghost. Yeah. Fortunately, she wasn't terrifying. Nothing ever well, moved around. Nice. It was just cold and smelled like cookies. <clears throat> that's why you had so much space. That's right. You guys and Agnes. <laughs> yes. We had to fit Agnes in there, too. So now we're going to go next to a story. Let me see here. Uh, this was, and I'm trying to find it. I'm in the wrong spot. Um, this is the tale of Charlie Feathers. It was written by Shelby Weeks. Uh, and you said this is a classic, right? Yeah, this is a Horse Nation and Eventing Nation classic. So this has been on the site for a couple of Halloweens. Um, and it's very popular every year. This is one of my favorite ghost stories. So. All right. Well, Jennifer took a shot at reading it for us. So here it is. Charlie Feathers by Shelby Weeks. It will take a few minutes to work. I injected calcium into the cow's jugular vein, slipped the needle out, capped it, and returned it to my breast pocket. Like all of Dean Paul's cows, she was a registered Holstein that would produce a remarkable amount of milk once she was over the milk fever that I'd been called out to treat. It was a fine night for October, mild and clear. A breeze stirred wisps of hay in the mow. The barn was dark beyond the circle of light cast by the dim light bulb hung overhead on a knotted extension cord. A flutter of barn sparrows in the rafters drew my eyes upward. It is haunted, you know, Paulus offered from a hay bale where he sat leaning against a massive beam that supported the shadowed roof fifty feet above us. Tripod trotted over to him and flopped on the hay. The dairyman automatically scratched him behind his single ear. A small, mixed-breed, three-legged, one-eared dog traveled with me, visiting rural clients in the northeastern Indiana County, where I practiced veterinary medicine. Tripod was a stray, hit by a car, and he had been my first patient after I took over Doc Summers' solo practice last spring. Doc Summers had stayed on for a while that first summer, introducing me to clients and his ancient filing and billing system that consisted mostly of scraps of paper stuck in the visor of his pickup truck. At the first hint of frost, he clapped me on the back, wished me well, and left for retirement in Florida. Again, the flutter. I glanced at my watch and the cow, then drew up my own hay bale. Paulus shifted into a more comfortable position. It was summer of 1930, he began. Things was rough. Depression and such. My daddy went to Gary to find work, and my ma stayed in Elkhart, taking in wash money to feed my baby sister. I was sent to this very farm, where my grandpa was working over 140 acres by himself, since the hired man 
had died that winter. Grandpa blamed himself some for that hired man dying. The fellow's name had been Charlie Feathers. They called folks like him simple-minded back then. Couldn't read nor write. Signed his name with a big, real careful X. There's a photograph of him standing beside Grandpa, holding the halter of one of the draft horse stud colts. He was a moon-faced man with a smile that just split his face in half. Loved horses, he did. He'd come in to eat with the folks, but every night, summer or winter, he'd sleep beside the horses' stalls in a little room off the barn. I keep my tools in there now. He'd worked for Grandpa a long time, even before Grandpa married Grandma. He was a hard worker, doing things before Grandpa told him to. He was a good farmhand. But his real calling was those big draft horses. All the farming was done with horses then. I guess Grandpa had 20 or more Percherons on the place. Breeding and selling horses was a considerable part of the farm income. And he used the horses himself. Plowing, cultivating, harvesting, hay and logging, hauling ice. Him and Charlie Feathers kept four teams working pretty much full time. He gave Grandpa a chuckle how Charlie Feathers would always get the best of him each morning. No matter how early Grandpa got to the barn, Charlie Feathers was always ready and waiting with the teams harnessed and set to go. Grandpa would act all surprised, and Charlie would smile like a kid at Christmas. Grandpa's horses was the best, too. Charlie fed right and looked after him good. Our stallion stood taller, our mares settled better, and our workhorses pulled stronger and longer than anyone else's. Charlie did our vetting, and all the years he lived, Grandpa said, he never had a sick or lame horse on the place. A colt learned to turn quicker and stop faster and back straighter and pull harder when Charlie Feathers held the lines. Most amazing was that Charlie Feathers could drive two teams of four, one behind the other, offset plowing. He drove the first with his lines and the second with his voice. Grandpa said he liked nothing better than to see some neighbor stop by the fence to rest the team in the shade. Grandpa would wait until the team was close to them and then slip off the seat and say, Hey, Charlie, you take him. Then he'd visit with the neighbor, all the while the two of them watching Charlie making flawless turns at the end of the field, the second team's near horse keeping the head right even with Charlie's right shoulder. Something special. That must have been something to see. Buying the tractor killed him, you know, Grandpa said. Just wasn't a need for so many draft horses on the place after that. Charlie Feathers seemed to fade a little each time a horse got sold. I actually cried when the big stud horse went for mink food. Charlie brushed him all nice and nailed a new set of shoes on, knowing all along horse wouldn't make it through the day. Finally, there was just one team of Geldens left when one morning Grandpa found Charlie wrapped in his blanket, dead in the hay beside the team, right there in his here barn. Last thing Charlie Feathers done, Grandpa said, was harness the team so they could be set to go. Now, that summer I came to work for Grandpa, he was doing all the farming with the tractor. But he still had that one last team of horses for logging in the fruit hills south of Bristol. I know it was late May because he was plowing. I was 10 years old. I was a smart mouth city kid, mad that I'd been sent off. I'd miss my mom more than I'd say, and I sure was mad that my daddy didn't take me with him. Grandpa put me to helping Grandma, her being more patient and all. That day, I was supposed to be putting in the vegetable garden with her. Truly, I was trying to help, but hating every minute grubbing in that dirt. About noon, she took pity on me and set me out with a basket for me and Grandpa to eat dinner in the field. 
I had to walk up a rise and then down to where he was plowing on the west side of Dock Lake, which is more of a pond surrounded by a wetland than a lake. I kept listening for the tractor, but I wasn't hearing it. Finally, I just fell into following the new turned earth, figuring he'd see me the next week back. But I found him first. The tractor, it was an old gray Ford, had slipped off its metal spiked tires into a soft spot where Grandpa had come too close to that lake. It was easy enough to do. That black crust looks real firm until you hit it. A team of horses, on the other hand, they'd have felt that soft footing and turned. I guess trying to turn out too sharp sent that tractor over, catching Grandpa underneath in the watery mud. Ford tractors was always back heavy like that. I ran around to where Grandpa was pinned under the tractor. He'd been there a while, judging from the dried mud on his face. His big arms were wrapped around the tractor, with the tips of his fingers wedged under the engine hood. His legs were somehow caught underneath. She's sinking, son. Go get the team. And I ran, straight to the barn. And then I rode back on the near horse, clinging to the collar, and beat my heels nearly bloody on the harness buckles, making those two percherons trot to the field log chain hanging on one and the double tree hooked to the other. I jumped off as the horses slowed at the edge of that sinkhole. All I could see of Grandpa was his hands and a little bit of his face out in the mud. He was spitting dirt and then grabbing a breath and struggling to keep his head up. I hooked the log chain on the front axle by reaching through those metal spokes. I fastened the four harness tugs to the double tree and then I took the line and danced the horses in place for a second to dig in good before I gave the command to walk on. There was a giant sucking sound, and just like that, the tractor, with Grandpa clinging to the seat, came right up out of the mud. He untangled his leg from the clutch lever, climbed down, and sat in the shade of the tractor looking at that mud. I couldn't think of nothing to do except get Grandma's hamper where I dropped it and set out a meal like she'd told me to. We sat there a good long while not saying anything to each other. Then we ate. They was bacon sandwiches on homemade bread and a jug of ice-cold tea. I truly do not recall anything that ever came close to tasting so good. We sat a bit more, and then Grandpa said he figured that was enough for one day. We unpinned the plow and pulled the tractor home with me steering and Grandpa handling the team. Inside the barn, Grandpa started to unfasten the team. He stopped, then turned to me real slow and said soft-like, who harnessed these horses, son? I told him they were standing there harnessed when I got to the barn. What I left out was how gently the man in the barn had lifted me to the back of the percheron, how he showed me where the tugs hooked to the double tree, and how he told me to dance the big horses in place before I asked him to step out. I didn't tell him because that man himself was still standing, not a foot away from my grandpa, holding the near horse's bridle. As Grandpa finished the unharnessing, the man holding the horse seemed to fade into the shadows, which for some reason didn't strike me as too unusual. Kids kind of accept strange things like that. I could see, though, even if my Grandpa couldn't, that the moon-faced man was grinning like a kid at Christmas. A sudden flurry overhead reminded me that Paulus's cow should be up on her feet, and a quick look showed me that she was. The old dairyman walked me out to the truck, tripod dancing before us in the full light of the moon. At the end of the drive, I took a long look back at the dairy farm. Black and white Holsteins were shadowy images in the luminous pastures. As I pulled onto the road, I saw two silvery-gray percherons standing sleepily along the fence, the moonlight giving their coats an eerie pallor. 
In Doc Summers' file cabinet, I found Paulus's file under D for dairy farmer. My next guess would have been H for Holsteins or maybe C for cows. I wrote the cow's ear tag number and a brief note on my diagnosis and treatment. Curious as to why I had missed two older horses when listing Doc Summers' equine client for yearly vaccination notifications, I turned back through the sheaf of papers that were filled with crabbed writings of my predecessor. I could find no reference to two horses until 1958. It was the same form I still use today. It simply states the owner of the animal, here Doc Summer, had written two aged Percheron geldings, granted permission for euthanasia. In the space for the owner's signature was a neatly drawn letter X and Doc's notation that hired man signed for owner. If Paulus's dates were right, the team must have been over 30 years old when Charlie Feathers somehow arranged their passing with the same care he'd given them all their lives. I closed the folder and took it to the wooden desk and put it on the stack for billing. The moon had set. It was the hour before dawn when night is darkest. Tripod pushed his lopsided head under my hand and shivered. Perhaps he knew, as I did, that this was the hour when, had we lingered at Paulus's dairy, we might have glimpsed the ethereal wraith of Charlie Feathers as he led his ghostly team into the barn, draped them in gossamer harness, and greet the day with a smile like a kid at Christmas. Oh my god, I have goosebumps. Ooh, that one gets me every time. <laughs> oh my god, that was written by Shelby Weeks. She has to be a professional writer. That was like brilliant. And I honestly, I don't know where it came from. Like, it just turned up on Horse Nation under uh, the Leslie Wiley regime. So we've just been reprinting it every year because oh it's so God, good. Oh, my God, Shelby, if you're listening, that was I, – I literally had goosebumps. And obviously, she knows a lot about draft horses, you know. Yes. She's in the driving draft horse world. And, and for you, having draft horses and driving them all the time, all of those references were absolutely correct. Oh, it always makes my eyes cheer up. Don't oh, jeez. <laughs> Woo. All right. <laughs> we got a couple more for you here today on this Halloween special. We're going to go to Aubrey Moore now. And Aubrey read her own. She wrote one called Old Wooden Bridge. This one's a little bit longer, but it, it'll keep you from the beginning to the end. You're going to be with it. And Aubrey does a terrific job reading it. It's called The Old Wooden Bridge. This is The Old Wooden Bridge by Aubrey Moore. Eleanor Evans was well-known in town for her odd behavior, but she was known almost as well for the tall Palomino horse she rode each day. Toby was a beautiful cream-colored mount with a thick mane and tail. His face always wore an expression of good-natured geniality, and the children in town fawned over him until their parents shooed them away from the woman. Eerie Ellie and Toby could be seen every day on the road to and from town. The two would start out in the high pastures, lit from behind by the bright morning light. They'd ride down the valley and join up with the main road, plodding along as the wagons rolled by, coating them in a fine layer of dust. Eventually, they'd make it into town, where Ellie would trade her goods for what she needed to get by. Flour, cloth, cream. Ellie was something of a medicine woman. She'd gather and make her wares from the land around the cabin. Berries from along the roadside, mushrooms from deep in the forest. She had salves for burns, creams for rashes, and word was you could get other medicines with a darker purpose, if you only had the coin. The townspeople were wary around her. They kept their distance, did their business with her when other means failed. 
Ellie and the folk mostly left each other alone, an unspoken agreement to live and let live, with the exception of the Burton boys. The Burton boys were the sons of Joshua Burton and his timid wife, May. Joshua was the richest man in town, and nothing was done without his say. His boys were raised to think they were untouchable, and no one had ever been able to convince them otherwise. They terrorized their teachers, disrupting class and picking on their fellow students. They drank too much at the saloon and ran their horses up and down the streets, driving wagons and people off the road. There had been more than one suspicious fire at a business that would not bend to Joshua's will, and there was once a little talked about death at the saloon late one night, where all the witnesses swore Edward Conway tripped and fell on that knife twice. They had the run of the town, and even the sheriff knew it. And their favorite pastime was taunting Ellie. It started innocently enough, whispers and giggles as Ellie and Toby rode by each day, the boys posted up on the fences and porches in town. Then it progressed to catcalls, taunting Ellie about her looks, about living as a single woman alone in the woods. The Burton boys' favorite game, though, was to ask Ellie if Toby was broken. "'Can't that horse move any faster?' eried Ellie, they'd call to her. "'Someday he might need to run. Hope he's ready.' The boys would break into peals of laughter as Ellie and Toby walked solemnly by, never looking at the group. They'd stare after her with their cruel, sharp eyes. One night, as is often the case after too much whiskey, the boys started to get up to no good. The drunken talk eventually turned towards Ellie. "'What right does she have to ignore us?' they asked each other. "'Who does she think she is? We're the Burton boys!' The eldest Burton drew purposefully on his cigarette, watching the end burn brightly in the dim bar. I think, he drawled slowly, that she is a nuisance to this town. The other boys looked up at him. What do you mean, Brent? They asked. She ain't right, he replied. It ain't right for a woman to keep to herself. And those potions she sells, it's no good. He pulled from his cigarette. He's right, replied one of the others. She's some sort of witch. The whiskey flowed faster and so did the talk. I heard she put a curse on Mrs. Andrews after Mrs. Andrews refused to do business with her. Her garden ain't never been right since, said a voice from the crowd. I heard that too, and that she caused the Wilders to lose that baby in the spring. The stories began to come one after another, the boys talking themselves into a lather. By the time they were finished... They were convinced Erie Ellie was responsible for every mishap and tragedy the town had ever endured. Well, boys, I think it's time somebody did something about that, right? said Brent. He received a chorus of whoops and yells in reply. Another round was poured. Down the street, Ellie stepped out of the Burke home, closing the door softly behind her. Mrs. Burke had suffered a bit of a cold and asked Ellie for some ointment to help stop her cough, but asked that she come late at night when no one would see her. Ellie walked to where Toby was tied up, waiting patiently for her to finish. He nickered softly as he saw her approach. In a world that rejected Ellie, she still always had her Toby. "'I'm sorry it's so late, boy. You'll get extra dinner tonight,' Ellie said as she rubbed Toby's forehead." She scratched his withers and laughed as he stretched his neck out, flipping his top lip up and down. All right, all right, let's get a move on and get home. I'm tired. I'm getting too old for late nights. 
Ellie untied Toby and mounted lightly, and the two set on down the road for their home in the woods. As they passed by the saloon, the door swung open with a bang. Toby looked sideways but kept his same even tempo. The Burton boys began to spill out from inside, tumbling drunkenly into the street. Hey! They recognized Ellie and called after her. Eerie Ellie! Does your horse run, Ellie? The men began to walk after her, first at a stumble, then a jog. One by one, they piled onto their horses and followed her, roughly pulling them around. Ellie looked behind her, and then she turned back forward. Her heart beat harder until she could practically see it thumping under her dress. She clicked to Toby, and he picked up his pace. Ellie! Hey, Ellie! Just stop and talk to us. We just want to talk. The men on the horses carried on behind her. The townsfolk peeked out from behind curtains, hushed whispers behind hands. Ellie laced her fingers into Toby's mane and urged him on. He slipped into a canter and then stretched out into a slow gallop. Damn, boys, that horse can run. Let's see if he can run faster than us. The group yelled and whooped at their horses, kicking the frightened animals into a gallop behind her, kicking up dust as they went. Ellie could hear them gaining, and she begged Toby to go faster. We can't stop, boy. We can't let them catch us. Toby flicked an ear back and stretched out, tearing up the ground with his large hooves. They reached the end of the main street and galloped on. Ellie's mind raced. They would never make it to the house at this point, and she didn't want the group to follow her home. She thought to the path ahead. If she could reach the small wooden bridge over the river, it would slow the boys' horses down. They couldn't ride abreast across it. If she made it over, she could duck into the woods past the bridge and escape. She and Toby knew every inch of that forest. She rode on, feeling the boys gaining on her, even without turning to look. Brent rode his horse hard, foamy sweat already flicking off of its chest. Hey! He gestured to two of his brothers. She's running for the bridge. Cross the river at Swell's Point and cut her off. We'll follow behind. The brothers nodded and broke off from the main pack. Ellie was too busy urging Toby on, her hands wrapped tightly in his mane, to notice. It seemed to her that they galloped all night. Never had it taken her so long to reach the small and ancient bridge before. Finally, she crested a hill and saw it, the wooden-covered structure, with a flaky layer of faded red paint on the outside. She and Toby ran and ran and entered the bridge, hooves clattering over the wooden boards. Toby saw it before she did, sliding to a stop on the slick wood, standing tall as he regained his footing. Two of the boys blocked the end of the bridge. Their horses, used to being ridden hard and fast, had outraced Toby and made it to the other side. Ellie cursed herself for getting stuck. She turned Toby around, only to spot Brent and the others where she had just come from. "'Well, well, what do we have here?' Brent asked. The men chuckled. "'I think it's a witch!' called out the men at the end. A chorus of, Witch! Witch! followed. I do believe you are right, brothers. And what do we do with witches? asked Brent. The men stared at each other, whiskey-fogged brains not providing an easy answer. We burn them. The gleam in Brent's eye looked like madness. The men cheered and a torch appeared at either end, brilliant fire casting orange shadows into the black night. Toby screamed loudly and Ellie went cold with dread. Surely the men were still teasing. The men with the torches rode forward and, with a nod, lit the ends of the bridge. 
The old dry wood cracked and creaked as the fire raced to meet in the center. The roof was on fire immediately, and the flames snaked down the sides, crawling along the floor towards the pair. Toby squealed and spun. Shh, boy, shh, it's okay, it's okay. Ellie gripped Toby tightly as he began to panic. She turned from one end to the next, but both exits were blocked by large bodies. She raced to one side, but the men turned their horses sideways and would not let her through. She and Toby had nowhere to go. They had no friends here. The bridge was consumed quickly, the ancient wood turning to ash and charcoal and breaking off into pieces. Cinders flew up into the night, and soon the townsfolk could see the orange glow from their houses. They ran from their homes and rode out to the bridge, where the Burton boys were standing. The bridge had fallen down into the river that coursed beneath it, a white-hot orange pile of embers. The heat made the river sizzle loudly on the rocks below. "'Darndest thing, Sheriff,' Brent said, laughing loudly. "'The bridge seems to have caught on fire. Just the darndest thing!' Hope no one got hurt. And with that, he and the Burton boys rode off into the night. The townsfolk watched the bridge. Once it had cooled, they sifted through the remains, but never found any sign of Erie, Ellie, and Toby. Some said the bridge burnt too hot and would not leave a trace. Others said Toby carried Ellie safe off into the night, galloping deep into the forest away from the danger. Nothing was ever found out for sure. In the years that followed, one by one, the Burton boys began to disappear late at night. They'd leave the saloon in the darkness, riding home to their families, and never make it. Or they'd go missing on the road from the big city, the one that passed through the deepest reaches of the forest. No bodies were ever found. Brent was the last of the boys to go missing. He spent his days more drunk than not, sitting in the saloon, his eyes sinking slowly into his face. He didn't laugh so loudly anymore since his brothers were gone. His wife had taken his kids and moved back to the big city after his drinking got too bad. He told anyone that would listen that his brothers just got lost, or maybe jumped by the highwaymen that were said to patrol the big roads. But he knew what happened to them. One night, late one autumn, when the moon shone down bright as daylight, Brent got in a fight with a few of the men at the saloon. Long-held grudges came out as well as tightly-held fists, and the men threw Brent out into the night. Dust flew as he landed on the street, and he stood up and tried to push his way back inside. The townsfolk had barred the door against him. At first, he angrily slammed his fist against the wood, demanding to be let back in. Then, anger slowly gave way to desperation and desperation to fear. He begged to be let in, saying over and over that she would get him. The townsfolk peeked out from behind their curtains at the scene on the street. Behind Brent, the steady clip-clop, clip-clop of horse hooves sounded faint in the distance. He banged harder, tears streaming down his worn, grizzled face. The sounds got a little louder. He beat the door a little harder. Someone was coming. Brent realized he was not getting back in the saloon. He stumbled down the street, trying every door handle, but all the doors were locked to him now. The boys were gone. Joshua Burton and his wife had long passed, and the town was no longer afraid of their wrath. Curtains rustled and lights dimmed inside, the people turning away from what was happening. Finally, Brent reached the end of the street and looked back. She and Toby were there. 
standing quietly in the street, watching his frantic movements. The Palomino seemed to glow in the moonlight. He and the pale girl were so still, Brent thought his drunk mind was making them up until he heard the girl click, and the tall horse started slowly moving forward toward him. He turned and began to run, hoping to make it into the thick of the forest where no horse could follow. Behind him, the horse started to gallop. Brent ran and ran, his breath coming in short bursts. None of the townsfolk saw what happened after. They heard the noises from outside of town, the hooves and the yells. And the next day, they found the body of Brent Burton in the river, face contorted into a scream. The sheriff ruled it an accidental drowning, said Brent got drunk and slipped off the rebuilt bridge. Handrails were put up not long after to prevent further accidents. But the men who hammered the nails knew what happened. They all knew what happened. The townsfolk left in the years after, deserting the stores and the homes along Main Street, moving to the big city for better opportunities. The ghost town slowly rotted and fell apart until there was nothing left but a few old chimneys. But the bridge stayed, and so did the sound of steady hoofbeats on each late autumn night. Holy cow. <laughs> well read and well written. Aubrey did both. Aubrey Moore did both of that. She read it and she wrote it. Yeah. Wow, what an active imagination job. she has. And you could picture the whole scene. I mean, it was so oh, well yeah. written. Had you from the yeah, beginning to the vivid. end. Yeah. She did a brilliant job. Wow. Well read, too. Wow. Okay, I have goosebumps now. All right, so <laughs> so we have time for one more, but I wanted to remind everybody, before we do, we're going to actually play the show out with this last one. It's a little more lighthearted. We're going to leave you with, with a little lighter tone to end the show <laughs> that we have. Um, <clears throat> happy Halloween, everybody. But tomorrow is our anniversary, Kristen. It is seven years. It's our birthday here at Horses in the Morning. We started really? November happy 1st. Yeah, we started November 1st, 2010 was our first show. And we're going to celebrate it tomorrow. If you would like to leave us a voicemail or <clears throat> record a little message on your phone, we'll play those tomorrow. Send them to uh, Jennifer at HorseRadioNetwork.com or Jemmy at HorseRadioNetwork.com. And, or leave us a voicemail. Several people have done that, 859-474-0261. And if you don't have a pen, you can just go to the website, HorsesInTheMorning.com, and it has a voicemail line in the contact part. So we would love to hear from you tomorrow. We have a special day plan for you. We have a big announcement. We're going to start the Weatherbeta Radiothon announcement tomorrow. We'll give you all the details that we have so far. And it's 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 Radiothon month. That starts November 1st. So you're going to have to start thinking about your entries for Radiothon. Now that you've done Equestrians Have Talent. And by the way, the winner was announced on Stable Scoop that just came out to Monday. So head over to Stable Scoop and you'll see who the winner of Equestrians Have Talent was. Kristen helped me with that. Thank you so much. Um, and then you're also helping on Radiothon, too, the last hour. You're going to be with us. So <clears throat> we want everybody to join us tomorrow for that. We're also going to have Scott from Around the Track and the Pollock Report giving us a Breeders' Cup first look tomorrow. We have a busy day planned for you tomorrow. Thank you so much, Kristen. First of all, thank you for all your help with Equestrians Have Talent. Thank you for putting this together. This is fun. This has probably become a tradition, too. We've got a lot of new traditions this year. Yeah, thank you, Glenn, for having me come on. This was fun. Horse Nation. Mood for sure. 
HorseNation.com. Now, if you actually want to read these stories, they're at Horse Nation, and also I'll put a link to all of them in our show notes for today's episode at HorsesInTheMorning.com. And Kristen is also an auditor of ours, and, you know, I talk all the time, Kristen, about how I think every avid listener, if you listen to this show every day, or any of our shows here at the Horse Radio Network, you should be an auditor. And I think you would agree with that. That room has to be the most fun, fun room there is on the on Facebook. Yes. Yeah, I have definitely I've made some connections in that room from people I wouldn't have met otherwise that we chat uh, outside the room. And then, yeah, it's a good place to bounce questions around in a judgment free zone. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of inside Horse Radio Network jokes going around in there, too. Yes. So, lots of fun. <laughs> yeah, some of them at my expense, but that's OK. Well, that's what makes it fun. <laughs> So it is a judgment-free zone, and I think that's what makes it such a neat place. There's really nothing negative that happens in there. And you know what I like about it, too, and I I got asked this early on. Uh, actually, I didn't start this room. One of the auditors did. But I got asked early on, can we post things that are not horse-related? In other words, personal things. I mean very personal things. And I think people feel comfortable. They feel like it's a family, and they feel comfortable posting in there because they know, one, it's not public, and two, it is judgment-free. Mm-hmm. So that is some, something to consider for as little as a dollar a month. You too can become an auditor. Head on over to Horses in the Morning or HorseRadioNetwork.com. There's an auditor banner right there. Click on that and it'll take you. It's very easy to sign up. And as I said, you can do it for as little as a dollar a month. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. Now this last story, tell us about this last one. I read this one. Yeah, this is The Stirrupless Horseman by Heather Ledbetter. Um this is a really good one to transition away from Halloween and into No Stirrup November tomorrow, I believe. So, yes, and we get can, ready. Drop your stirrups. And uh, because I'm going to play the show out with it, I'm going to say this before we play this. Leslie started No Stirrup November years ago. And Leslie, after you listen to this story, I'd just be looking over your back. That's all I'm going to say. Wow. The Stirpless Horseman by Heather Ledbetter In a town not too distant, in a barn not unlike yours, there's a tale of a most unfortunate soul. A young riding student full of hopes and dreams began his journey under the instruction of a seemingly pleasant instructor. Each day he would skip to his lessons, eager to learn the art of horsemanship and to gain skills as a rider. At first the instructor was kind and patient happy to aid the young rider in his journey. The corrections were mild and encouraging, gentle even, but it was not to last. As the months went by, the riding instructor grew impatient and cruel. No amount of Starbucks offerings would appease her. Every ride became more intense and tiring. Corrections were no longer gently suggested, but screamed out. The instructor would even chase the rider with a whip when a corner was cut or a stride left out. It was a nightmare. The once happy rider became ragged, and circles began to form under his eyes from lack of sleep. He just lay awake at night, trying to think of how he could please the instructor. Would it help to bring her an iced instead of a hot latte? Should he offer to groom all 20 of her horses for her? There was no way of knowing. One day, in a state of insanity, the instructor created a new form of torture for the rider to endure. She took away his stirrups. 
At first he thought it would be fine. He'd trained for months, and surely his muscles were up to the task. He was wrong. So wrong. He completed the first lap around the arena with ease. A smile almost managed to sneak its way onto his face as he rounded the last turn, until the instructor gave another order. Posting trot, she shouted, smugly sipping her coffee and taking a seat on the mounting block in the middle of the arena. Sweat began to pour off the rider's forehead. His legs began to burn with each post as he made the third, the fourth, and then eventually the tenth lap around the arena. Tears began to fill his eyes as he begged to be allowed to stop and rest, but the instructor just laughed and shouted, Heels down! As she continued to sip her coffee and revel in his discomfort. This carried on for a solid hour. Finally, the rider collapsed, falling from his horse. His body had given out. His last words to the cackling instructor as she stood over his dying body were, Beware the curse of the stirrupless horseman. A week later, that same instructor was found hanging by her stirrup leathers in the tack room, her cold hands still clenching a vente latte. They say that the stirrupless rider still haunts that barn and every barn where there is injustice. He rides through the arena at night with no stirrups, moaning and crying, heels down! If you listen, you can hear the gentle clanging of stirrup irons in the tack room, a warning to all riding instructors that he is still out there and he hungers for justice and to have his stirrups back. (laughs) 